You are listening to Punk Theology. My name is Russ Shaw, your host. This is Season 1, Conversations. Episode 1, Introducing a Panel of Punks. Episode one introducing Arthur, Derek, Chuck, John, and Steve, the panel of punk peoples. This does everyone have a drink? No. Gentlemen. I don't even have a glass. Hello, gentlemen. Oh, I have Hello. a I have a glass of did I shouldn't even mention oh, that. That's all that's all been done before, right? There's podcasts where people are drinking and Isn't that a thing? Isn't that yeah. that's our idea? I don't know. I'm trying to figure out a place to put the uh, the mic. It just doesn't That's kind of their MO. There you go. So Punk theology is a, uh, a project. What's punk and what's theology? That's pretty basic, right? And life. And life. The loud, encouragingly troublesome, rebellious, colorful artistry of what one really actually believes. Um, the whole idea came to me not too long after my mom passed away. About a month after my mom passed away, I pick up a guy. I'm an Uber and Lyft driver. That's what I do for a living. And I pick up this guy, younger guy, and he's going to class. And he's, he says he's a seminary student. And he, he says, I'm in a hurry. I have an exam. And I said, well, well, what kind of exam? And he said, a theology exam. And I said, well, th- theology, isn't that like faith-based stuff? Like, why is it an exam? Like, how can you get a bad answer, you know, in, in a theology exam? And he said, I don't know, dude. He's like, there's catechisms and old dead guys wrote stuff, and I'm supposed to memorize it and learn it and have come up with the right answers. And so we had this conversation about about what, who's God, and, and I'm kind of raw because my mom just passed away, and I'm thinking about growing up, you know, with her and the church and Sunday school and all the weird stuff that I was fed as a, a Christian kid growing up in, you know, rural Snohomish County, Snohomish in a trailer park, you know, after my mom and dad got divorced, and that's when it got really weird. You know, the, the altar calls and, and things, my mom having troubles. and So, long story short, that's where this whole thing kind of evolved from. Like, who, you know, this, this story around a, a creator seems very, very punk to me. Does that make sense? The story of a, around a creator <laughs> seems punk? Yeah, it seems very punk. Mm. What's punk? Yeah. So I'm going to introduce the staff here. All right. The, the staff of the punk theology, the uh, the who who all of us are. The, the conversations around this this crazy topic. Uh, Arthur, John, Derek is pouring. Chuck and Steve. These are all guys I know. Guys I've shared stuff with that I wouldn't share with normal people. 
you guys know me a little bit. Arthur's probably a guy I don't know as well as, as some of the rest of you. But I've Arthur and I have talked about stuff that most just regular dudes in the workplace wouldn't discuss. So sure. would you agree? I would. Yeah. All right. So, John, back to John. I'm we're just going to go. You know, we're just yeah, having yeah, a conversation. Yeah, yeah. There is no, in this, this podcast here, this episode, there's no rules. <laughs> just, we're just going to go. And to kind of introduce ourselves, and this is, this is who we are and, and what we're So, anyway, sorry. So, 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 so yes, is the idea of, of God punk? Is, is that, yes. Is the idea of God punk? There's a good question. I, well, I don't know. I mean, I have Let's to, let that question hang out there. Sure. <laughs> I don't know how to answer it because it seems like. I think a punk is being something countercultural. Mm-hmm. I don't know if God is necessarily countercultural. I suppose God could be, depending on the construct. But punk can also be one of those things that it, it's not linear. It's more of a of a circle. So once you go around, it can come out the other side. I mean, I've joked that you know I'm so punk. I own a home and I pay bills and I go to work. <laughs> like that's pretty punk rock yeah, right. nowadays uh, compared nowadays, to. Yeah. I don't have any tattoos, which is fairly... That's, that's fairly punk. <laughs> so, I have to think on that. If I, I suppose God can be punk if you're in a lot of secular circles. But so here's, here's, another another thing. here's another thing I wrote about this. Um, in a world of people addicted to some piece of certainty on faith-based reason, punk theology exists to explore some hopeful uncomfortable questions on growth, peace, well-being, uh, recovering what's lost, understanding the shit of the other, uh, faith, fear, and being alive, an examination of a misfit's awakening spirit. Uh, yeah, so how do, you, how do you define the meaning of beauty and truth? That's a, that's a, there was a theologian at Cambridge University uh, that, that that's how he defined theology is explaining the meaning of beauty and truth, which I thought was a pretty cool definition of theology. Yeah, for example, a lot that goes deeper than I just understood is simply the study of God. Yeah, <laughs> but that is yeah. m- much more beautiful and touches on what is God as well. Yeah. With that because question, because you can say that's philosophical more than yeah. it's theological, maybe. It, it, so, for the sake of introduction, um, I'd say that. You know, this is something I would do on a Saturday afternoon anyway. Right. You know, <laughs> like hanging out with you and Derek or, or just having a cigar. And if you're recording it, that's fine too because we have some great conversations. And, and So, Herf is something that started with, uh, with yourself? You, you're the one that came, coined the word herf, or not, not coined the word. I know it's an old word. Resurrected the word. Resurrected. You resurrected it. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I, I don't know how unique I can claim the ideas of getting guys together and hanging out and talking and smoking. <laughs> but, but yes, we, we did have a certain, uh, like a certain way where we would just regularly get together and hang out and just acknowledge that uh, dudes need to get together and hang out. And we're is just men not as great at creating opportunities for that or making that happen. Yeah, or having friends. Like, how many dudes <laughs> right. even have more than a couple friends, you know? And uh, they, they became less regular, but but yet, like, Derek and I would still get together. You and I would still get together. The three of us would still get together, maybe with one or two other people. Arthur and I reconnected, started hanging out with him more. And, 
it, I, so I, I see it as a chance, and you know, you guys have heard me say it, but what I find that I value the most are relationships and conversations where you can be yourself without being beholden to a certain theology or ideology, but this is just me and this is what I really think. Yeah, exactly. and, and having that freedom and giving other guys space to have that freedom. And that's, that doesn't mean that, that you won't get pushed back or, well, wait, man, what? I don't understand that or that sounds a little off or I don't know if I agree. It's not like necessarily like, uh, like, like, like friends are supposed to push back when they're supposed to push back. It's not like, uh, yeah, I'm leaving my wife and I'm going to, Go bang a nineteen-year-old and buy a sports car. I hope that anyone would like. <laughs> no, that, that's not okay. <laughs> but so all that to say, though, just having that, having freedom and space, though, to really be where you're at and say what's really on your mind and what you're really thinking. Now, I, I don't care what you're supposed to think. That's boring. I don't give a yeah, shit. Yeah, exactly. But what, what do you really think? What really makes you tick? That's what interests me. And those are the conversations I tend to value. And that's uh, what. I think Derek and I always valued about getting together and what Herf was for us. And if that uh, comes in the form of a podcast, that could be an adventure as well. So It's, it's embracing mystery <coughs> to a certain degree. Um, punk rock was birthed out of just rebellion, right? Like the world is kind of screwed up and I want to yell and scream and shout and make this art about it. And it's, yeah... Problem is, it is only some of those guys only know like two or three guitar chords, so yeah. it is predictable. But is, yeah, <laughs> that's kind of the, the cool thing about it is it's like, it's like giving birth or something, right? Like this message has to get out whether I know how to play an instrument or not. <laughs> right. Yell and scream and shout this from it's the cathartic. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's more about getting out raw emotion, yeah, than it is trying to make anything, you know, uh, complicated or. Coherent. Yes. Coherent. Yeah. <laughs> Does that mean that this needs to be more emotional? It could, it can be. It can be. But it doesn't have to be. But I don't I don't I don't know. I'm just an emotional person. If I'm here it's probably gonna be emotional because I'm emotional. And I think non emotional is boring. Like no one wants to listen to someone read I don't you're, know, stereo instructions or something like you're that. Boring. Well thanks, man. You are not boring. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when we left here last week, Chuck and I talked out front for a bit and I go, that is what I've been looking for, my life. What's Steve, that? This is this Steve, relationship. Steve speaking here. This guy's talking. Honestly, yeah. talking, throwing stuff out, pushback, not being afraid to explore the topics. Yeah. Not being for me now. It's moving out of the deconstruction phase of my life. Is that I'm looking now at who is God from a broader spectrum, yeah. not limiting him. That's why I like that. That was a right-on definition of theology. Yeah. Because then that God, right? Beauty, beauty, truth, truth, <laughs> creation. What's what is that exactly? Well, and that's what everybody's kind of grasping for, right? Or groping for in the in the fog. Yeah. And a lot of us are up till probably two, three years ago. I was uncomfortable exploring it. You're ready when you're ready. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. How, what does the readiness look like for Steve? You're, Steve is a, a pastor. You, you're an ex-pastor. You're not like a, a standing pastor at any place right now. You're not a, a part of any kind of religious organization as we speak. Uh, Steve's story is pretty cool as he was the chaplain for the Seattle Supersonics back in the day when we had a basketball team <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in the city. So you, you hung out with those guys. 
which is pretty cool. And uh, I don't know, that's an interesting part. Why couldn't you help Sean Kent, man? <laughs> I'm just <laughs> literally. If I, went, if I went, if I went to his sorry, restaurant, set the pace. If he still had Oscars, I would go in there and I can. She said, introduce myself and he would remember. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. That's cool. And the fact with Sean and it was just, <clears throat> as I look back, I can see just inklings of what this is becoming back then. Because I wanted those guys to come with no expectations. <sighs> That they could just be who mm. they were, yeah. and I didn't have any a preconceived agenda. I'd do a little 10, 15 minute message on whatever I felt like God had <clears throat> been teaching me. But them to have the freedom to come. And what was your question? <laughs> I don't <Sorry>. remember. <laughs> <laughs> your no, my question was originally um, what what started. Are, are, you know, and you don't have to share everything here because this is a public conversation. Like the, no, that's you know, cool. but uh, what was one of those things that had you kind of the, the doubt? Maybe I don't yeah. know. Um, Dissatisfaction. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't working. Yeah. You know, I was putting what I had always done. Um, I think Dallas Willard refers to it as the gospel of sin management. That it was more important that you be right or that you behave, that you look right, than to be actually be right. And don't express the doubts. Keep those to yourself. But you just towed the party line. Right. And it wasn't working. There was in me a fear. There was in me a, an insecurity. There was in me anger that, that was creeping out. And the faith that I had been sold wasn't working because I was approaching God as what can I get as opposed to approaching God. Right. And just for God's sake. And that's become more real in the last couple of weeks as I continue to pray and read and talk with people and say, hey, this is bullshit. Right. It's been <laughs> bullshit. And I, I, I am just so, I'm so frustrated with those that, that have that answer, the pat answer. And I, wanna, I feel like I want to shake them and say, what are you, what are you even saying? What, what do you mean by that? So it seems to be that, you know, a lot of what American Christianity is, and maybe it's Western, but we're getting away from systems and institutions, I think. And maybe part of that's birthed out by the Internet and how, you know, it's hard to keep secrets now. But since the birth of social media, anybody with a, a Facebook, a Twitter account can talk about what's going on behind the closed doors of the system or institution that they're involved with, you know, whether that be a church or, you know, <coughs> a workplace. It's getting harder to to hide, I guess is what I'm saying. And this is what, you know, this is a way to talk about some of that stuff and uh, hopefully in a way that makes sense and is, is entertaining. So can I jump off of what Chuck said? Yes, ma'am. This is Steve. 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 Chuck. Sorry. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fairness, I met both of them five minutes ago. Right. This Aren't is you? Arthur. Arthur speaking. Arthur is on the uh, on the floor. I am the uh, token atheist in the group. Why I'm in a theology podcast, I do not know. Because <laughs> it's punk. Might be more punk than it is theology. Yeah. <laughs> I want to give some more flesh to that definition, though, too, because I think the thing that resonated with me when you first mentioned it, and this was months ago when uh -huh. you talked, when you first when you first dropped that title and told me you wanted to get get this podcast rolling, um, 
the thing that resonates with me about about the term punk and, it, and its and its <coughs> meaning is that it's it's anti-establishment. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't always an atheist. Um, yeah. I've, I've been to Bible college. I was an ordained deacon. Um, For how long? But like Steve said, I six years. Okay. As a but truck rolls by the alley in the studio that is Derek's garage. <laughs> Gotta work on the soundproof in the middle. <laughs> no, it's good. This is this is very punk. Anyway, go ahead. But, but like Steve said, it, the establishment wasn't working for me anymore. In fact, it was it was the exact opposite. It was it was working against me. Um, and so I think the thing that we've been talking about the the way that the way that us getting together operates is that we. We talk about things that a lot of people don't talk about in, with an honesty uh, that doesn't always get conveyed in most male relationships that I know, and particularly within the <clears throat> confines of institutional churches where there are theological right answers that get put on tests. Yeah. And often if you don't hold to them, you are ostracized. Yeah, and because the system or the institution is God. God's not God. The, the system's God, and, and if you insecure. buck the system, and it's, and it's very insecure. Yeah, that's right. It's less human. Than There's it something is the, the, like I'd say with regards to what Steve said, what Arthur said, as I'm interacting with it is. There's that idea, and I, I love how you put that, like not working. And I've said that so many times. And what's hard, I think, for people to understand that haven't maybe deconstructed their faith or had the floor fall out from underneath their feet is for a lot of people it does work it, it works until it doesn't yeah and it, it, it's so interesting like on the other side of it it i, I don't know how to describe it it's almost like not a body experience or, or, or something is if people come at you with platitudes bible verses or you're supposed to an autos it's like you don't understand it. It doesn't. It has absolutely no power. It like nothing. It doesn't work. I've shifted. I've left the building, yeah. and that's hard for people that are still in the building to understand. Yeah. And everyone has their process. I struggled sometimes to get frustrated. It's really only been relatively recently that I've been able to just understand people's process is their process. Like like I've always known that in my head, but actually like being able to release them to it, like it serves a purpose for a time. And like I said, you're ready when you're ready. And there's people that it does still work for. And that's their process. They might not really like what we're talking about or where we go with some of the conversations because it, quote, still works. And yeah. that, that has its place in their process. Maybe yeah. it won't in five years or ten years. And maybe some people are listening for the person in their life who's going through the process. Right. Or, you know, has, has turned in, you know, I think of the movie Office Space. Right. Oh, mm -hmm. So good. Uh, there's a lot of Christian office space guys walking around going, you know, this doesn't work. You could you could say that about guys like uh, uh, Rob Bell, Donald Miller, even Mark Driscoll back in the day. And that's another thing about this conversation is that uh, four of us at the table were part of the Mars Hill Church uh, experience, to use that, to use that word. Um, so like I dude, I freaking <laughs> oh man, and I left. I left a church that was like a family to me, and that that was a whole a, a whole thing. Um, and I, I started going to Mars Hill, and I was doing this podcast, and I, I had been called some Christian version of Howard Stern back in the day, 
And part of my ego really liked that. Like I thought that was kind of cool. <laughs> and then I hear about this Mark Driscoll guy in who was Seattle, a shock too. who was a shock jock preacher kind of. He guy. was like the Christian radio. Tom Likett, <laughs> and I was in love. The cussing like, pastor. The cussing pastor. And Donald Miller mentions Mark in his book Blue Like Jazz, the cussing pastor in Seattle. Uh, so, so going to that church, I really thought for a while. We were doing things right. Like, this is the way it should be. And this is more like a family. This is more like a... And there is a, there's a punk aspect to what happened at Mars Hill, too. Uh, Jeff Becker, uh, uh, he was a pastor there for a while, but he was in a punk band, and they started a, a music venue. The church started a music venue called The Paradox, which was an all-ages music uh, venue for all ages. Now, in the city of Seattle, you had to have like $100,000... Uh, worth of insurance if you're going to do an all-ages music venue in Seattle, which shut down a lot of these little clubs that were doing all-ages. And Mars Hill stepped in as a church to fill that void. So this was not Christian music either, by the way. These were straight-edge metal and punk bands coming in to, <laughs> to this this venue. Um, uh, I guess Death Cab for Cutie played there. There were some, there were some bands that, that people would know. I can't remember all the, the names. But, you know, that's that attracted a lot of people to Mars Hill Church back in the day. It wasn't just Mark's preaching and how Mark's a shock jock or, or Mark was a, a great communicator. And I don't want to get too much into to the Mars Hill thing that happened, but I just wanted to bring that up that that that's part of this conversation. And this is the Mars Hill story is kind of raising its head again in the media because part of its Mark is kind of doing the media rounds and conservative Christian television and stuff like that and podcasts. Um, but it's also that other churches are looking to what happened at Mars Hill today because they're having their own issues with their own, you know, bullying of a, of a pastor or misappropriation of funds or uh, I don't know what happened to why is the secretary topless. In, in the foyer, I don't, you know, stuff like that, right? Things. I mean, that not, not that there wasn't a sexual thing that happened at Mars Hill Church in Seattle. That That's what confuses of. people that we know of exactly. But uh, anyway, I thought I'd bring that up, and and that would maybe introduce Derek a little. Derek, you guys were involved in, in community groups. Uh, John did redemption groups for a little while. You, were you involved with redemption groups? I think you were. I was. So I. I was involved in redemption groups when they were purity groups, men's oh. purity groups. Right. Uh, and that was right before I got, nine months before I got married. Uh, and I've struggled with porn addiction since I was 16. It isn't a, you know, people always fuss over, is that even a thing? Right. Uh, but it is an addiction for me because it's a compulsive. And most of the time, you know, my definition would be 95% of the time I would tell you I didn't want to do it. Right. And then I wouldn't be able to stop myself from doing it. And that's fairly good at, uh, Definition of what musician is. People want to split hairs over that word too. It's funny. It's like who cares, man? Right. It's like if you look it up in the dictionary, it means bad habits. You know, like in the Webster's dictionary, if you have a really bad habit, you know, it's one of the. I got the DSM five right here, Russell. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so I was part of men's purity group, which I actually thought was better because uh, it was long term. Better and worse at the same time. Uh, it was more focused on behavior management, which was not great. But in terms of establishing long-term relationships, I thought it was better. And then I did redemption groups a couple times. Never led redemptions groups. I did lead a community group for six years, probably. John was my very first when in my very first community group. 
which actually was a wonderful community group. Russ was in that one mm -hmm. as well. Uh, we're all still pretty close. They're all wonderful people. It was just mm -hmm. kind of a weird mix of people that all really got along well. They're all very intelligent, very open-minded. Um, I didn't even want to go to Mars Hill until I went to that community group. Yeah, it, it sucked one me of the in. Best things, Damn you! <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I did that, and then Mars Hill wouldn't let people just sit in community groups, nope. which was kind of bullshit. Oh, by the way, I swear a lot, so yeah. <laughs> I don't know if anybody's so sworn we, yet, but we're not, we're not holding back <laughs> with the languages. And so they made group split, So, which honestly we had... 16 adults and 19 children under the age of 7, which is insane. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, I ended up splitting and starting my own group, which was good. I ended up leading two more groups after that, and it was good, but it was never as good as the first group was. And, yeah, and obviously my relationship with John and with Russ has lasted much longer than any of my relationship with those other people. So that's kind of right. where that came from. So, But, yeah, I was... I wouldn't say... I'm, I'm not a... Uh, toe the lion, hook, lagging, and sinker, uh, you know, join the establishment type of person. I've always been kind of the person that sits on the fence and just, you know, stuff that comes up that I don't want to do, I just say I don't want to do it and I'm not going to do it. And they say, well, you know, we need you more than we need to fire you, so right. we'll keep you on. And eventually I did get uh, taken out as a community mm -hmm. group leader. And I was being a, yeah, I was being a coach, which John has a, as a trigger word for John. No, I'm okay. Because coach. Because we're scores in coach. <laughs> in which I was coaching other community group leaders, and I got pulled out of that. I was like, okay, whatever. I did that, too. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, so that's kind of my history of Mars Hill. And I think that's what John, kept John in the group, actually, because John was really hesitant about all the authoritarianism in Mars Hill. But I was so, you know, whatever. Like, whatever you believe is kind of whatever we're going to deal with. I don't really give a shit, you know, Leadership may be telling me to do this with my group. I'm probably not going to do it. <laughs> yeah. This is kind of my yeah. my take on it. If you don't want me to do it, I you know I don't I don't necessarily I didn't necessarily like long to be a community group leader. Right. Like I just kind of fell into it. So at any point, my you know if they were like, hey, we don't want you to do this, we're gonna fuck it. I'm out. Right. That was kind of my attitude. But I, I managed to stay on for six years, which is kind of crazy. But and yeah, you're so, still in that. You still go to the the church that yeah. split off from Mars Hill. So I'm I'm. The opposite of Arthur, and that I still go. I I stayed exactly where I was. <laughs> um, so when the challenger the launched, it exploded. Yeah. Breathed as Derek landed right back on the launch pad. Right. Right. Hey, safest place to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's ambulances everywhere. <laughs> um, so yeah, and that's that's me, and that's been, and it's interesting watching John and Arthur and kind of walking through them with that because we did have very different philosophies um, on how to do that. And my take on that was, I'm just going to stick with what I know. I think a lot of this is bullshit, but I have a very high tolerance for bullshit. <laughs> like I'm John. John says often that I'm very pragmatic, uh -huh. um, and so I just have this kind of understanding that everything's going to be shitty, right? No matter where you go, and I. I don't deal in ideals. I I'm actually drive my wife crazy sometimes because she's a fairly idealistic person. I just enjoy poking holes and all. So you're, her you're kind of that engineer yeah. mind, like yes, you're, you're like facts much. and figures, which is really interesting to me. Uh, you as as a as a guy doing the community group stuff because you would go there because a lot of. A lot of engineer types like yourself would, would want to follow the Around the spectrum? Is that what you're trying to yeah, say? Yeah, outside the spectrum. But you seem to be, Derek, a guy who does value 
<laughs> the relationships more than the the system or, or, or whatever is, is right. The yeah, rhythm. I'm kind of a freak like that. Uh, honestly, I'm. I do not fit into most of the stereotypes of what an engineer is. I think I'm a really good engineer. I really enjoy what I do. I am an engineer, by the way. All right. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. But uh, I grew up in a family full of very technically savvy, rational people, but that were also extremely emotionally intelligent. Mm. And we speak in emotional intelligence, and I've always been very aware of what I'm feeling, and very interested in what other people are feeling, and fascinated by the way other people bounce off each other. Uh, some engineers get super turned off by this, you know, by anything that's not in a system. Uh-huh. And I get fascinated by things that are that have way too many variables for me to be able to understand. Uh, I kind of get bored by the systems. Oh, so. cool! Yeah, it's yeah because they are. If you figure them out, once you solve that puzzle, yeah, just, then what? Right. No fun. <laughs> and humans are an infinite puzzle that always gets more and more interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you might be the highest emotionally functioning engineer I've ever met. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Derek, was my first, uh, Derek was my first friend at Mars Hill. <laughs> and when I went, I had this... There's that For people that outside of Mars Hill, there's this caricature of the Mars Hill man. And I was so freaked out by it. You know, because yeah. I, I was there. You know, because I, I didn't plan on staying there too long. I just was checking it out, and uh, and I meet Derek. He's like my first friend there, and he didn't fit that bill of the Mars Hill man at all. Yeah. And they they are they were there for sure. Oh, yeah. But this guy's like, oh, he thinks for himself and kind of outside the box. And okay, I can hang with this guy. And then I got sucked in. Yeah. <laughs> no, you were that guy for me too. So you, you you both of you guys didn't fit that Mars Hill guy thing with the MMA and the. Well, it just goes to show that there's, I mean, there, there's caricatures and then there's actually real people behind, you know, behind the curtain. Once you get to know them, and surely there's more free-thinking individuals that were at Mars Hill. Yes, some towed the party line more than others. Yes, there were more of that caricature than others. But there are some. Good solid people there that had open minds. There was a high demand for Type A ladder climbers. Yes, at Mars Hill. yes, yeah. and it was yeah. very That's common at every level of leadership to find a Type A ladder climber. Yeah, right. yeah. Even if you didn't know anything, right? Yeah, <laughs> than, about anything. Well, that was kind of the model for a while, right? They kept bringing in people that were Christians for like two years or something hey, like that. But, that guy that but had these great resumes. They fly them up in, from you know, yeah, so, west yeah. somewhere, and well, that was interesting. Well, you were talking about the, that it was a big system. Chuck, this is Chuck. Chuck speaking now. So we, we've Hello. got the full table, the full gamut. Chuck is Hi, Chuck. in. Hi, Chuck. Hi, Chuck. Oh, crap. I just sound like a recovery group. <laughs> <laughs> so I just had a fucking flashback. Triggered yourself. Oh, shit. Triggered yourself, Russ. I just went back to... But you were, you were talking about it that, that it was a machine. And that's what you want, though, right? I mean, you want a bunch of type that's A. Not what I wanted. In a machine, no machine aspect. The machine things. Oh, you the want machine a bunch of it. type A ladder climbers. Yeah. And that's where I think a lot of the organized religion falls into is you don't want that. You want the relationships. You want this small group of people that are going to open up and share, you know, everything that hurts them or is joyful too. Right. Well, what's curious to me is, and even like like on on this side being out several years now, it, it's it, it sometimes amazes me that the machine is usually the glue that often holds people together. There has to be a thing. There has to be a. We're having community group on yeah. on Tuesday nights. Well, that's the thing. 
well, if we don't go to the same church anymore, are we still going to get together on Tuesday nights? Well, no, that, it just kind of falls apart. It's so weird how that happens, but it often does. The machine is oddly the glue oftentimes. Yeah, that's, that's, another, that's a good thing you brought that up, too, because I don't want to make the machine the bad guy or the systems it's and not institutions as the bad guy. It's like if you look at a marriage, a marriage is a good example. A marriage is, a, is an institution, so to speak, right? Two people get together, and they decide we're going to have babies and buy a house or something. I don't know. And, but, but that, file our taxes. <laughs> yeah, right. it's, that's it's all it cheap is. Yeah. <laughs> I, heard a, I heard a woman, she was talking about marriage and the reason for, speaking of large machines, um, <laughs> she was talking about the reason, it's, this is an atheist uh, psychiatrist in New York that, that had a really good example of why, why people should get married. She said because the marriage is the institution, like you said, the glue that kept my husband and I together, and she was, you know, older uh, for 40 years, or however long they were married, when love came in and out. Mm. You know? When the, when the glue, I would use the word affection, by the way, but when, when that affection just comes and goes, the marriage, the institution, the, the system that kept us in the same space while the affections kind of come and go. Mm-hmm. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, it's the system that everybody pays into. It's like the modern currency. Like, basically, it's a number that's made up, right? Yeah. The one dollar isn't tied to anything. It doesn't mean anything. You can't go exchange it for gold. But it's a system everybody in the country is bought into, into, okay, this is going to work. And that's kind of like you have a group of people, and they've all agreed this is kind of the way we're going to do things. Yeah. Which... Uh, <laughs> Is dangerous, which makes the thing work, but it's also super dangerous because it leads to authoritarianism really quick. Right. Um, and I was thinking the other day about just how authoritarianism is so much like gravity <laughs> because it only takes one person with a really strong personality to turn an institution into an authoritarian institution. Right. But it takes an entire group of people constantly managing it to make it be a libertarian, free, anti-authoritarian system, which is way harder to do. So it's yeah. kind of one of those, the, and you know, the entropy towards authoritarianism. Um, those relationships have to work and flow. Right. Well, that was another uh, John Philip Newell, his his definition oh, of philosophy, or not philosophy, but theology. Uh, John uh, Philip Newell said that the theology, the Celts would describe it as a flow. Mm-hmm. Like God is not just a, a you know, sky fairy or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like old man, this guy with a beard. But it's it's the flow that that is what we're talking about and and those relationships actually working it's part of I think it's part of that flow because human beings by nature just with our egos aren't susceptible to keeping relationships sustained you know because we all have our thing and we want to do our thing we all want to be the authority at something and this maybe this work is sort of a project that busts outside of that a little bit I don't know well you're talking about marriage and you know with relationships I mean, just think about the idea that, I don't know, couple gets married. I mean, I got married 22. My wife was 21. Like a 22-year-old kid knows what he's doing or talking about or committing no. to? No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what were you going to say, Arthur? I, think, uh, I was going to say that the idea that, uh, that marriage is what holds, that institution is what holds the relationship together through that ebb and flow operates under the assumption that it's still good that those two people are still together. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, Which you can't know until you look back on how it went. And like what John said, when you make that decision when you're like 22, I was 21, 
I mean, my wife and I went through a horrible set of circumstances where, you know, we split and I, I left and I left with no idea that we would ever be together again. I, I fully did not believe our relationship was salvageable. And I don't think it was the institution that came together, that, that held it together, because right. I was ready to bail on that. But what had happened was, who we were when we made that decision originally at 21 years old, both of us, was different when we were 38 and decided, no, we're going to rebuild something new. And we truly believed everything we had built before that had burned the ground, and we were willing to say, we're going to let all that go and move forward with something new, even though it's the same. But, it, but it's not, because we are not the same people. Right. I'm 40 years old now, and yeah. I am not who I was when I was 21. Yeah. Some of my personality is the same. Much about me and about who I am is the same. <clears throat> but, the, but the presuppositions that we had, <clears throat> that we would walk through life together as conservative Christians, you know, part, part of that coming together was, look, I don't believe this anymore. Yeah. And if we're going to have a relationship together, it's not going to be based on that anymore. And <clears throat> kudos to my wife, because she was able to make that change and... and change some of the things that on her part that that destroyed what we had before that it couldn't hold the weight of itself as an institution but that's part of that deconstruction process where when you deconstruct what you had eventually you have to reconstruct you can't yeah. you can't stay there forever yeah yeah that's what my friend seth would call blowing up your marriage you know and I think that a sustained relationship over time has to go through something like that. What I went through was really horrible. And I, I confessed some really horrible things that I had done in the marriage to my wife. And I thought it would be over, and it wasn't. But that was one of those blowing up, I use a bomb squad analogy, right? Like just setting a bomb off and blowing up that relationship and then having to deconstruct it into something else, you know? And... Ironically, there's a lot of people that have written that about the spiritual climate of the West right now. Like, there's a lot of that going on right now. Like, the, the shit has hit the fan, and people are questioning, and people are doubting, and but people are also coming together with new ideas on, on how we do this. I think in general, the weight of the institution that is American evangelicalism is crushing itself yeah. under that. I think I think one of the big metrics where I see that particularly recently is the change in red state voters who a decade ago, a little over now, held Bill Clinton's toes to the fire over a blowjob in the Oval Office <laughs> right. and were the primary group that said character matters for securing the office of the presidency and now they are the primary group in polling that says character no longer matters yeah see who's <laughs> on their team who gets some power yeah <laughs> not that we're going to get political on this show but this, that's part of this conversation it's punks it? politics right? punks. They, they dance <laughs> politics anarchy that's right, that's right. <laughs> carrying a sign you're not going to find a lot of punk Hey, I was asking at the last election which candidate winning will bring about the demise of both parties faster. Yeah, that's, that's what I want to see happen. Like. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, they were both. I think we got that candidate. Yeah, yeah. that's true. <laughs> it was the the total evil of two lessers. Or, yeah. So, Chuck, I wanted to get into your introduction a little more 
to the audience here. What is it in your story that has, has seen the, uh, I don't know, the man behind the curtain working the levers maybe? Um, <laughs> maybe that's part of this conversation going into a, uh, that metaphor. Was it the yellow brick road that came to the place, and then you get to the place, and there's just an old dude with levers well, and masturbating <laughs> furiously? Yeah, right. You know, so yeah. pay no attention to the man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, was, you know, when I was a kid, you know, it was, I was introduced to Christ very young. I mean, we went to church. We went to a Christian Missionary Alliance church, and they're very um, God's a judge. You know, it's you must do A, B, and C. Um, if you don't do them, then you're going to hell. Right. Um, if you don't go up to the altar and confess all these sins and ask God to be in your life, well, you're going to go to hell. And if you don't do it every Sunday, you're going to go to hell. And you know, it's just very. And that that's always been my view. Is just God's the judge. So it's when when I go to heaven, you know, it's just God's going to stand there and say all these bad things I did, and then hit the gap, you know, the gavel or whatever, yeah. and then it's whatever happens. It's uh, the ashtray for Chuck. Yeah. <laughs> and then where, it's a, where it went... Smoke, how would Robin Williams call it? Smoking a turd in purgatory for you. Uh, anyway, I, sorry. I think I would enjoy smoking a turd <laughs> over that. Um, <clears throat> where it all went sideways was about three years ago when I, my wife left me. Um, and it was... That was the kind of a peek behind the curtain. It's like... You know, I'm devastated. I hit my rock bottom. I have no idea what to do. I'm searching, I'm searching, and going to all these different churches trying to, you know, get my fix and realizing that, well, wait, all these people are just as broken as I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the curtain starts to open a little bit more, and, it, well, like you said, I see the, you know, the man behind her just jerking off. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wait a second, okay. And, I, and I'm still new to all this stuff because I, well, yeah, I just, I'm new to it, and it's great. Um, just wondering where it's going to go, though. Exactly. I, I, I'm also an engineer, and uh, I've always joked about, you know, I have three feelings. One is retired, <laughs> the other two are drunk, you know, and it's just... Hunger's uh, yeah. got to be in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're busy. Like, just go away. Give me the facts. Um, and I'm starting to realize that God has a lot of feelings for me, and I, somewhere in my shell is feelings for God and other humans, too. And it's just yeah. trying to work all that out. So that process of sort of deconstructing and asking those questions is relatively new, you'd say? Yeah. This is, must be scary sometimes? or Well, it, well that's I sent that uh, message over the uh, Facebook. Uh-huh. You know, like I feel like I'm going into a, this huge exam. <laughs> I haven't studied a lick for it. <laughs> and it's like, there's, there's no wrong answer. We're just hanging out talking. But yeah. it, I don't know, it's just... It's yeah. weird. It's you know what's funny is before you sent that, I was thinking about sending you some of the questions that I was going to ask to just send it out to all you guys, and then and then you said that, and I thought no, nope. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather just flow with it's this, like, but rather just let it go. No, I just study. Yeah, we just study this. Study this. I need to read up that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and then that begs the question: What if it doesn't go anywhere? That's the mystery. Well, but that's what I'm embracing here: is what if it doesn't go anywhere? Maybe that's the Seinfeld in this whole conversation. We brought that up earlier. This is a show, this podcast, Punk Theology. Punk Theology is like, it's either everything matters or nothing matters, right? It's a show about everything and nothing to a certain degree. There's a, there's a philosophy uh, professor who did a whole breakdown of Seinfeld, by the way. I think it's somewhere on YouTube, which is really interesting. And it had me thinking about Punk Theology, too. 
but yeah, that's that's a that's something to to talk about. But that this that's part of this conversation that I've learned through my story. Um, and my story is I became borderline atheist um, for a while. I was also addicted to pornography. I had more things going on than that. So I before that, I get into my story a little bit. I'm an ex. Uh, alcoholic, drug addict. I still drink today. I just don't drink myself unconscious anymore, uh, which is, uh, I think it's progress. <laughs> you s- you stop it, blackout. <laughs> right before right shy, shy yeah. of blackout. blackout. Pass out, not black. No, I bought this new meter. Yeah. <laughs> so I was forced into uh, rehab by the state of Washington when I was 17. And, and then I was taught that alcohol is the devil and that if you ever do alcohol, you have a gene, right? Um, and, and then I went from that to methamphetamine and crack cocaine, which wasn't better. <coughs> so, you know, getting into my story and recovery. And then I went from that because I found the right Christian God that saved me from my chemical romances that were destroying me. And I, I believed that for a long time, that, that, that I had done the, the sinner's prayer or whatever, the altar call, and that had somehow cleansed me from... It was really a, a, a strange my recovery from from those things because I remember Derek and I were talking about that I remember wanting another rock cooked in a spoon and and smelling that smell when that glass dropped that thing in the glass pipe and lit the lighter and I could still as I'm saying this remember that smell because it was that addicting and I would you know do what it takes to get the next rock but I was also I so I trafficked uh Cocaine for a while. I was a, a drug dealer to a certain extent. I more trafficked than I was dealing. So I, I was a pretty bad dude uh, back in the day. The uh, the pull for for getting away from the chemical romances was that I had love in my life. My daughter was born. I also got married really young. Um, oh, and the rain is coming. Here's, here's, here's Seattle. We'll, we'll have a thunderstorm soon. <laughs> So my wife got pregnant. I had, I had my daughter, held her in my arms, and I thought, I'm responsible for this person. And that was a, a huge wake-up call um, to me. But then it was pornography over the years. And then it got darker than that. It really screwed up my marriage and my life. And I was living a double life, which was super stressful, by the way, trying to keep two people, two facades going and keep these two lives, these plates spinning without the other one finding out about this one. And, and that was exhausting. Uh, and it just about killed me. And I had suicidal thoughts. I almost killed myself a couple of times. So it was, it was going to a church where these guys, and I went to a couple of churches, and a lot of these guys didn't have a lot of answers for me, right? It was like, well, get up early and read the Bible and have some quiet time. And, you know, like, all right, do whatever. And then, but it was a couple of guys at this church in Marysville that really listened to me and were patient and let me speak, and 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 talk to me like a freaking person, not like I, they had to have an answer for everything, right? And, and I found that um, tremendously helpful. And then Rick was the first guy to say, "God is unknowable." Um, so I think that's the point where maybe I entered being a Christian mystic to a certain extent. And uh, those guys were kind of the vampires that that uh, turned me, maybe, Sorry. right? <laughs> right. So, uh, so yeah, that's that's my story in a nutshell. Um, but going to Mars Hill after that, because I didn't like that, to be honest. 
I didn't like that God was a mysterious and, and, and unknowable. <laughs> I liked Mars Hill's thing where, you know... Where some guy had all the answers. Yeah, some guy had all the answers. Told you to follow. Here's you a, can't know God. Here's a script for you, and the <laughs> next next sermon is going to be about how to fix this in your life and how we have all the answers. Because that was the, the thing with Mars Hill, is they have the answers for everything. There was an answer for everything, right? And I liked that. I, I liked that, but it wasn't true. Because, you know, we all saw... I think that was front page news in the New York Times or something like that. When the <laughs> this is like the book I don't mean to. No, no, no I'm sorry. Okay. But yeah, so. Well, John, you referred to that in as cognitive dissonance. Yeah. I had to look up what the hell it meant. I, I'm cognitive dissonance. I mean to take on at some point a. Like journaling project where I just want to sit down Thanks, after the course of like you know a few months because there's all these things I have in my head mm -hmm. just get them all out. And I, well, I have put like some things that kind of read like journal entries in a lot of ways, and I'm not. I, I traditionally haven't been a journal a journaler, but yeah, just cognitive dissonance, and some people can live with it better than others. I've never been great at cognitive Unpack dissonance. cognitive dissonance. You looked it up. Yeah, you looked it up. So there's listeners who are probably going, what the hell is <laughs> yeah. that? What is this? They psychology hour? Too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's when your belief and your actions are um, in tension together. Or opposition. Yeah. Or, yeah. There's that thing in the back of your mind, like, yes. you know, that doesn't sit well with me. I know that's, that's not true, or it doesn't really hold true, but I'm going to ignore it and just... And, and, and just do the thing that is contrary to that in right. spite of what that nagging voice is saying. Well, yeah. I, I had to look it up. And it <laughs> says, the state of having inconsistent thoughts, beliefs, or attitudes, especially in relating to behavioral decisions and attitude change. Yeah. I would say it's an uncomfortable feeling. Yes. You can feel cognitive dissonance. It's an, oh, sure. it's an oh, emotional yeah. thing. You feel it. It's there's there's these two things and they're at odds with each other. We're in the middle of feeling that. I heard a, a, a professor at Berkeley, he had a great uh, he, he said every romantic comedy is a perfect example of cognitive dissonance because every romantic comedy goes like this. Uh, boy meets girl, uh, they fall in love. There's a, there's this story. They come together, and it's all great. And then something happens, and the lovers are twisted and busted up. And they, oh, the, you know, she's now they get broke up. And then at the end, they solve the dissonance because they fall back in love. And they, oh, we did we found something out about each other, and we moved through this thing, and now we're now we're in love again. And, and they get married and roll credits, right? Yeah, Fade to so. black. That's every that's a good example of solving uh, an independent film doesn't always do that, and that's why independent films don't make the millions of dollars that well, the blockbusters But the reason it works is because cognitive dissonance is an essential part of being human. Yeah. And yeah. you can't get away from it. No. If you don't have it, you turn into a Vulcan or a computer. <laughs> yeah, right. We are purely rational. But why do we love the... And you only deal on rationality. That's right. That's true, yeah. But we love, the, we love the stories that solve it, right? We love yeah. things that resolve. Like, right. we love when... You know, the Death Star blows up, and we win the Hunger Games, or whatever it is, right? We love that story right. more than we love the, the the independent film. Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe that's existentialism. I don't know. Maybe people that like the independent film are more interested in being honest about their cognitive dissonance. Yeah, mm. uh, that's a more human story. Maybe yeah. I mean. Or maybe the reason people like stories with nice, neat, happy endings is because it soothes something in them, or the the desire to you know 
maybe they want to be honest, but this kind of distracts them and soothes that down and and puts them in a place where they can ignore or or, or jo- jo- jump back into the into the cognitive dissonance and feel okay about it instead of wrestling with it or having to be honest about it or wanting to talk to somebody about it. it maybe it's just a soothing agent. I think there's a difference between embracing a certain level of mystery intention than cognitive dissonance because to me cognitive dissonance speaks to something that conflicts with core values yeah. or things that are really important to you. Um, that's I, th- I think in my mind at least those are different things because certainly yes to be human you need to allow for those variables of I don't know and I'm, I'm never going to yeah. know and that's okay. Well and even just being human is this is irrational I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> sure. Yeah. 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 Right? Well, I, I, would, I would bring it around to the theology aspect and say and that's, and that's part of what I think Punk theology should be about if I get any say in what that is. Right. Since I was invited here, I guess I do. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Go for it. Um, yeah. is We're going to exercise our authority. <laughs> <and tell you. laughs> so limited. It's like an empty shot glass. <laughs> Calling out. So, so the idea of punk is that is you're not living those two lives when you're going punk. You're, you're living. Yeah. And, and you're also not really for anything, but you're really, really against something. Right. And, and I think. The kind of the concrete example I would give in evangelicalism that a lot of people wrestle with in cognitive dissonance is, is trying to understand this gospel of, lo- of a loving God we have today where, where historically as Americans we started off, what we have today is a product of the Great Awakening. It's a, yep. it's a product of hellfire and damnation. Yep. And then we've slowly morphed that into this God who's loving and cares about you, but you still have this Bible that shows you a very different God who did very awful things. They are attributed to him. Right. And you're stuck going, no, I believe in this God who really loves me. But he might smite me. Right. right. He might send bears to kill me. And actually, because I, I jeered at one of his prophets. <laughs> like, he might ask me to take my son and sacrifice him on a mountain. Right. And, actually, and then, like, say psych at the last minute and years ago. <laughs> one of the roles, I would say, of a modern pastor is to <coughs> soothe that and explain it away, yeah. but also use it as an edge. So they're, you know, it's the, it's they're they're walking this line of, oh, you better be careful, you better not do this, but it's okay, you know, God did this, but no, it's it's not as weird as it looks, and it's okay, it can be explained by this interpretation, you know, if you read enough dead old guys, it'll make sense eventually, uh, but you should still be kind of worried yeah. because you know something. You and know, I can I could explain what those stories mean to me because that's personal and that's my. I think that's the best. I think that's the most honest thing you could say about biblical interpretation. Is well, there's how some, there's how some do those good... stories make make you feel, or how did they move in your life? Like, what did the you know? The... There's some good hermeneutics to explain that. Stuff. Yeah, They're hermeneutics just... is a word. That's... Well, sorry, yeah, no, I don't mean to get all. No, that's cool. But but like like a way of understanding those stories. There are ways to do that. They just usually predate uh, the Enlightenment right. or even the Protestant Reformation. So we've had two $10,000 words. Sorry. Right. Sorry. No, that's okay. No, no, no. Don't apologize. John, it's great. Bringing theology to our theology. <laughs> theology time. I went to but what is hermeneutics? What, what is hermeneutics? Just to explain uh, it. A, a way of, of interpreting the Bible. It's like the art and science yeah. of biblical interpretation. Yeah. It's not a way. It's the study of the way. Yeah. <laughs> so there are many hermeneutics that are applied to yes. the Bible. Depending on your tradition, you adopt the one that's been taught to you by whoever's telling you what to believe. Right. Right. Yeah. Yes, as a matter of fact, we did have a blast. 
That's cheesy. I should I should redo that, but I'm not going to. Uh there's one of them fucking dad jokes right there. Both my kids being in their twenties would say that. That's that's a dad joke. Cheesy. I'm okay with that. That's the end of part one of this conversation. There's going to be part two on the next podcast. Look forward to that. That was actually the sound of the the bad religion God smiting us, I believe, for doing that podcast. But uh, I believe in a creator who's uh, open to asking questions. If you go to a, a church or religious institution where questions, the hard ones, are not allowed, you should probably run. That's what I would do anyway. Uh, but yeah, we did have a blast. And again, part two, next podcast, punktheology.com is where you can find the website for this here odyssey into theology or theological version of MTV's Jackass. I don't know. Uh, We'll get into that later. Uh, Look forward to having you subscribe to this podcast so you can catch more episodes like this one. Uh, Go ahead and share on social media if you feel that that would be appropriate or especially if you feel it would be inappropriate. uh, You should do that. Like uh, The outrage, right? You should tell your friends that this is horrible and they should never listen to it. Maybe start some kind of boycott. Like, that. Would, that's what we need, is a good boycott of the Punk Theology podcast. Uh, all kidding aside, uh, I really do feel in my heart that it is important to have these kinds of conversations to work some of the stuff out. I've seen it. I've felt it as this kind of weight that I'd been carrying around, some of these questions, some of these feelings, some of this dissonance, and talking about it, uh, podcasts like this one being like letting down that heavy, heavy weight. Uh, There was a guy who said something about that, right? Something about heavy burdens? I think uh, he also got in trouble for challenging authority and and saying challenging things to religious elites. Uh, It was a long time ago. Anyhow, if you'd like to interact with the podcast, at Punk Theology Pod on Twitter is our Twitter handle. Uh, You can send us an email. Punk Theology Podcast at gmail.com to maybe ask a question, interact with the show that way. And there's a Facebook page that we haven't decided whether we're going to open up to the public yet. (laughs) So we're still hashing things out. It's kind of new. We also have a Patreon account. Do you want to be a patron of the Punk Theology Podcast? We have a, you know what? Uh, It's too early to ask for money. Ignore it. I didn't say that. Don't give us money. We're not interested in your money as I literally just cut off the phone with a collections agency. (laughs) And to quote a great song by a guy named Frank Sinatra, covered by another great man, David Lee Roth, that's life. That's what people say. But I am hopeful. I am very, a very hopeful guy. The music you heard on this podcast is a punk band from here in Seattle called 90 Pound Wuss from back in the day, Tooth and Nail Records. So that's a wrap. Season 1, Episode 1, Punk Theology. Shout out to my friend Jeff Becker for being cool with that. 
Jeff, who's in that band, in is way more punk than I could ever aspire to be. Till next time, thanks for listening. Bye.